Welcome to the Perfect Human Diet Podcast. I'm C.J. Hunt, writer-director of the hit documentary, The Perfect Human Diet, and today continues with The Perfect Human Diet's companion book as an audiobook. Each audiobook podcast will be presented by chapter, and as you get to know me and have questions, just call them in via the Anchor FM website or app, and you'll get them answered in an upcoming podcast. The Perfect Human Diet, the simple doctor-proven solution for the health and the life you deserve. Part 2, The Science. Chapter 4, Think Species. It's your story. When I was a boy and really wanted to know the answer to a complex question, my parents gave me straightforward and simple advice I can still hear in my memory. Look it up. (laughs) This, of course, was back in the days when we had to use books, the newspaper, or a national magazine like Life or Newsweek to find answers. The internet was many years off. Just think about it for a second, they would say to me. Well, Charlie... What do you think? Their goal was to help me become an independent thinker, stimulate my inherent drive to solve problems. Particularly, they wanted me to take the time to examine things from different angles, or different points of view, depending on whether it was a person, a place, or thing. And they always delivered their thoughts to me with a tone of encouragement. This advice was teaching me what we now call the proactive approach to finding answers, diving in and doing our own homework. Being willing to look past conventional thinking for alternative points of view and clues. But then, if I was confused and able to see why I couldn't get an answer or solve a problem, this is what I remember hearing the most. Try starting at the beginning and see where it leads you. Given how confused we remain about what to eat and what not to eat, starting at the beginning of our collective human history to see where it would lead was clearly the best way to get the big picture and also an objective journalistic approach to the exploration. Species 101, how we got here. This journey through human history that I'll be sharing comes from my full interviews at the Wenner-Grin Foundation for Anthropological Research in New York and other notable scientists specializing in areas of anthropology directly related to my search. Trying to wrap our minds around such a large span in time, about two and a half million years, can make it difficult to visualize and fully understand our very personal relationship to the defining moments that, number one, made us human, and number two, reveals the major behavioral changes that started our species down the path of a rapid decline in health. To illustrate and simplify the time span we're covering, I'll use a picture that is on a scale most of us are familiar with, a professional American football field. I'll also include several screenshots from my documentary, The Perfect Human Diet, so you can see things like the American Museum of Natural History's forensic reconstructions of what our ancestors looked like, and the rare two-million-year-old hard evidence, not on display to the public, that physical anthropologist Gary J. Sawyer showed me for the film. On a completely practical level, Knowing a bit more about the complete human nutrition story helps us begin to see the big picture of our human story. And following that story tells us why animal proteins and fats are essential in order for us to be as healthy as possible. Given what we've been told about diet and health most of our lives, it's also fascinating to see what has been flying under the radar of conventional dietary beliefs, government food policy, and the media's coverage of diet and health. The journey begins. In the summer of 2006, I was in Leipzig, Germany, at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, and had just concluded my interview with Professor Mike Richards, director of the Anthropological Science Group. While there, 
I was exposed for the first time to the remarkable technological advancements their scientists have developed that are answering questions we could never answer before about the human diet. The professor and I began chatting about human evolutionary nutrition and its direct effect on the human species in developing our large brain size. He said, to really understand it, you should go to the source, Professor Leslie Aiello in New York. She's the anthropologist who wrote the paper on how we developed big brains and small guts. Not long after, I was in New York with my small film crew in the offices of the Wenergren Foundation, about to interview Professor Leslie Aiello. I had learned while preparing for the trip that Professor Aiello's research focuses on the evolution of human adaptation, including evolution of diet, the brain, language, and cognition. Considering anthropology wasn't originally on her career radar, and taking into account her major contributions to the field, it was interesting to hear what inspired her as the camera was about to roll. As an undergrad student, Professor Aiello had had the option of taking a unique educational adventure for her summer session. In her case, it was an archaeological excavation in Utah. As she told me about the trip, it was clear that she was just as excited about it now as the actual trip was to her those many years ago. She said, I got hooked. Came back from the excavation that summer, changed my major, and never looked back. Professor Ayala started out as an upper Paleolithic archaeologist, specializing in studying the time period between about 15 to 20,000 years ago in Europe. The upper Paleolithic is the third and last subdivision of the Paleolithic, which ended with the beginning of agriculture. But that soon changed, finding she was more interested in people than bones. So her interest veered to human evolution. Since the early 1970s, that has been her specialty. The big picture, becoming human. The conversation that morning with Professor Aiello painted a picture about our human story I had never heard before. It was a big picture perspective on human evolutionary nutrition and how it resulted in our species first appearing in the African savanna, then eventually migrating out of Africa and spreading around the globe. To quote Professor Aiello, What we call the ideal human diet depends on what we call human, because we've had 7 million years of human evolution. But throughout those 7 million years, we weren't human as we would define it today. For probably 5 million years throughout that time period, if we saw one of these ancestors on the street, we'd recognize them as an ape standing on two legs, and their diet was correspondingly different. It wasn't identical to modern apes, but what we think is that they were subsisting primarily upon vegetable materials, fruit, leaves, that type of thing, supplementing, of course, with a bit of animal material. But at about two million years ago, we think the change really happened. Unquote. At this time, our ancestors, Homo erectus, were radically different in body form from an ape standing on two legs. They were about 50% bigger than those earlier ancestors, and if you saw them on the street, they would look more like us. They would have the same body proportions we have, long legs and relatively short arms in relation to those legs, but very importantly, smaller teeth and jaws compared to those earlier ancestors. As Professor Aiello told me, this indicates that there was something definitely different about the diet of those ancestors at 1.7 million to 2 million years ago. The question is, what was different? Animal foods. Again, quoting Professor Aiello. My own research seems to indicate that this transition involved a change to a greater proportion of animal-based food. 
Now, this wasn't necessarily red meat because red meat is tough to chew, and if you are on the African savanna, you're going to be competing with a lot of other predators. And you'll probably be scavenging at this time a lot of your animal-based food. And the primary predators would, of course, go in and take out the red meat and all. What our ancestors may have been going for was the bone marrow that would give them the fats to help fuel their body, also their brains. Because the predators wouldn't break into the cranial cavity, the brain cavity, unquotes. Our ancestors using rudimentary stone tools could do this. And as I was to learn over the course of these interviews, many people in the field think that this ability was essential to get the nutrients and the long-chain fatty acids to support the evolution of the larger human brain. In fact, from the archaeological evidence, it looks like these ancestors had developed better control over acquiring animal-based foods during this period. A good example, and one of the most interesting, is when you go into the archaeological sites, you see the bones of these food animals. And sometimes, the cut marks from the early stone tools are on the bones before the gouge marks from animal teeth. These cut marks and the broken bones tell us that these human ancestors were there cutting off parts of the muscle material and banging through the bones to extract marrow and brain matter before other scavengers were getting there. That's how we tell if we got there first. Quoting Dr. Aiello, quotes, But the whole point of it is, at this stage of human evolution, the diet was changing, and we think of it as becoming much broader because there's also another problem. They had this bigger body size, and they had to get the calories somewhere to support this large body size. Unquotes. One idea many of Professor Aiello's colleagues think could work as an example of broadening the Homo erectus diet is this. If those ancestors were relying more and more on rich packets of animal foods that are high energy and easy to digest, they could also then rely on some of the lower energy foods to sustain themselves. But those would have to be the ones with bulk that contained enough carbohydrates to support this large body size. Professor Aiello asserts that the trick was to get enough extra calories from the carbohydrates and the fats and nutrients that would support the growth and development of a large human brain. Big brains, small guts. Something else quite interesting that has come out of Professor Aiello's work is this. We have this larger body size, and if you look at the total amount of energy we would need from our foods every day to survive, we use exactly the same amount of energy as a mammal of our body size who has a much smaller brain. We have these huge human brains, and brain tissue is extremely expensive in energetic terms. You might then expect that we would need more energy because of those big brains, but we don't. Again, quoting Dr. Aiello, quotes, I mean, depending on how you measure it, our brain is about three times larger than what you would expect in an average mammal. And the mystery is, where is this energy coming from? And there's a very interesting relationship that explains this, because in comparison to the average primate, not the average mammal this time, we have very much smaller guts and smaller intestines. And if you look at the energetic costs of brain material versus your guts, it's about the same. So as the bottom line, what we get in our brains, we lose in our guts. And this balances our energy budget, unquotes. To me, this is one of the fascinating things about the story of our becoming human and how it relates to the changes in our diet. Remember that these particular ancestors, Homo erectus, appear in the fossil record with a new and different body form. Another distinction is that their whole chest region, down to their hips, is narrower. 
This reason, along with the increase in brain size and the smaller teeth, suggests that the digestive system had become smaller. And the only way that their gut could become smaller, according to Professor Aiello, was with a high-quality diet, eating high-energy foodstuffs, things that they could digest easily and could extract the nutrients from in a small length of intestinal tissue. This relationship, the gut becoming smaller and the brain becoming larger, seems magical to me, I wondered aloud, that somehow our bodies would know how to do this. Professor Aiello said, It's not magic, it's evolution. And it's evolution because those individuals that got it right are the ones that reproduced, produced the offspring, and actually spread their genes into the next generation. Unquotes. Certainly, this evolutionary pattern of body form changes in diet seems to have been the right formula for them at this period of time, because it's during this time, right after our ancestors achieved this change in their body form and the inferred change in diet, that they began to migrate out of Africa. And the next place we pick them up again in the archaeological record is in the Far East, and then later on in Europe. The next big change. Our brain and body sizes didn't really change much during the period 2 million to 1.6 million years ago. In fact, not much happened again for another million years. But then, at about a half a million years before the present, our journey to the becoming human story takes off again. The professor said, quotes, About a half million years ago, things began to change again, and the brain begins to expand. This is a period where we have ancestors called Homo heidelbergensis appear. Now, we don't really know why this happens, and it's one of the big mysteries in human evolution. But it's this type of ancestor that seems to be more successful in the more northern latitudes, like into Europe. And it's this type of ancestor, in general terms, we think are the antecedents, the predecessors of the famous Neanderthal man. Unquotes. According to the Natural History Museum in London, the evidence suggests that the African Homo heidelbergensis could be the ancestor of both the Neanderthals and modern humans. Homo heidelbergensis is known to have lived in both Africa and Europe, and they routinely butchered large animals and their fossil remains are often associated with hand axes. Modern Humans' First Appearance What an anthropologist would term as anatomically modern humans would be people that had heads like ours that were very rounded with small faces tucked in under the brain case, along with long linear body form. These types of individuals first appear in Africa about 160,000 years ago, so in the entire course of evolutionary history, it's quite recent. Big brains equal smarter than all the rest. With those big brains that were part of our development, it begs the question, with those bigger brains, were we smarter? Yes, is the short answer, Professor Aiello said. The longer answer is that it's a very difficult thing for these scientists to know, because current modern humans have a huge range of body sizes and a huge range of brain sizes. And similarly, we would expect our early ancestors would have had similar range in both body and brain sizes. Part of what I learned on my search for the solution to obesity and diet-related disease is that scientists, researchers, and academics are very reluctant to take the position that they have the final word in any area of research or study. What appears to be ingrained in many of them is that they are in a constant state of discovery and learning new things. Therefore, even when there appears to be a definitive answer, they always leave the door open, at least a little bit, insinuating that they haven't learned it all yet. 
Professor Aiello was quick to point out that when we say big brains equals greater intelligence, that she was not saying that a person with a smaller brain than you is stupider than you are, or vice versa. Quote, If we're looking at it across species, we assume that the increase in brain size, as we track it from our earliest ancestors all the way through to modern humans, actually tracks a change in cognitive ability. And of course, one of the big things here is the evolution of language, because this is something that does separate us from our closest living relatives. Unquotes. An interesting question is, in addition to cognitive ability, conscious mental activities like thinking, understanding, learning, and remembering, could our development of a spoken language also have helped influence the increased brain size? The professor added, there has to be a relationship. I mean, if I had to put my money on it, I'd say that this increase in brain size at about a half a million years ago is tracking the evolution of language. But there are other options, and there's really no hard evidence to test it right now. Unquotes. Human body fat. Professor Aiello said that the foods modern humans ate was an ideal diet in good times, but these early ancestors also went through a number of bad times when it was difficult to find enough food. Much of that was directly related to the many dramatic climate changes that have occurred. Human body fat and our ability to store that fat is, in her view, a direct reaction to this fluctuation in food availability that our ancestors experienced throughout evolutionary history. For example, Modern humans arrived in Europe during what is called an interstitial, meaning between two cold periods. The weather is unstable and irregular. Sometimes it's quite cold and other times temperate. In addition, modern humans arrived in Europe before the last glacial event, which peaks at about 18,000 to 20,000 years ago, which is one of the coldest moments ever experienced by humans who lived in this area. Obesity and fat babies. One thing we know is that humans have larger amounts of body fat than other primates. We also know that human females have larger amounts of body fat than their male counterparts, and human babies at birth have the largest percentage of body fat of all three. And why? Because body fat supports the growth and development of the brain, much of which happens in the first five years of life. And that is that ability to store body fat that helps us ascend the evolutionary ladder. If you look at human obesity in this context, you see that our early ancestors went through cyclical periods of plenty and famine. They would store fat during good times for use during lean times. In addition to individual survival, the larger percentage of body fat in women is a very important mechanism. Females not only have to provide energy for themselves, but also for infants they might be gestating. And for early modern human females, it was particularly important during lactation, which was a much longer period in human prehistory than in current modern humans. And so, what was our fat? It was, and still is, genetic insurance. But what's happened today is that we no longer need that insurance. It just builds up and builds up and builds up, ultimately leading to obesity. Dr. Aiello quotes, There are sort of a tantalizing things that we see in the archaeological record in the Upper Paleolithic, during the Ice Age in Europe, you have these beautiful little Venus figurines. These are images of the female body, and they're all, well, we would term them obese. And this was apparently an ideal form in the Upper Paleolithic. If you look at this in terms of insurance, those women with this type of body form would be those that would survive the difficult periods. And you know, who knows? It gets into speculation, but at least they knew of overweight people. Unquotes.
the beginning of our decline. There are a number of stories about what constituted ideal human nutrition. I remember from my childhood, the one that comes to mind immediately is that we, current modern humans, started out smaller and shorter way back in time. And because of the miracle of having better nutrition than we had in the past, we are now bigger, stronger, and healthier than ever before. Turns out, this story isn't true. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One, we've been told that longevity means we're healthier. This belief is predicated on more sophisticated medical interventions that extend life, even in the face of disease and extremely poor health. And two, culturally, we tend to define before in terms of a few generations before our lifetime, not in millennial terms of our species' evolution. When it comes to being bigger, stronger, and healthier in relation to our journey becoming human, what we know now is that many of the earliest modern humans were very big, tall, and robust individuals. And contrary to the persistent myth that they all had short lives, often with the implication that it's because they weren't healthy, skeletons of individuals who lived as long as our current average lifespans have been found. As you'll see a bit later in Chapter 7, the health and longevity problems they faced were due to very different reasons than ours, and not poor nutrition. Professor Aiello quotes, One of my old professors used to say this, the late Paleolithic, was the high period of human evolution, and it's been downhill since then, because they were eating a huge diversity of foodstuffs. For example, we go to the supermarket, and when we make a salad, we think we're eating a lot of different types of veggies and all, but in comparison to what our early ancestors were eating, this isn't true. They had a huge diversity. Unquotes. Beginning 10,000 years ago, we see our skeletons becoming less robust. The fossil evidence clearly shows a dramatic decrease in stature and skeletal strength during the last five to 10,000 years, beginning in the Middle East and slowly spreading around the globe. That major change happened with the development and gradual adoption of grain-based agriculture, which of course is a total change in the early modern human diet. The professor said, once you start agriculture, you seriously reduce the variety in your food, and this also reduces the variety of nutrients you get. What we think we're seeing when we see the real reduction in the skeletons, when we see the evidence in the skeletons of nutritional deficiency, that what we're tracking is this reduction of variation in the diet. Unquotes. I mentioned to Professor Aiello that a number of the experts I had interviewed said similar things, that our species' decline in health started with the advent of agriculture, and its displacement of critical animal proteins and fats. She said, quotes, of course, we aren't getting what we're built to need. And I think that's the bottom line of it, unquotes. Our species' current dilemma. In America today, somewhere between three and 400,000 people a year are dying because of obesity and obesity-related diseases. And tragically, the obesity epidemic and diet-related chronic disease is rapidly spreading to other modern countries that adopt our foods and way of life. A short list of diet-related chronic diseases include inflammatory and autoimmune diseases, diabetes, coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, and some types of cancer. For the most part, we have plenty of foods widely available in westernized countries, although most of the foods we find at the local supermarket are packaged and highly processed, refined convenience foods. I asked Professor Aiello if the crux of our current obesity problem is that important ability to store body fat for times of survival, and now we've just got too much food easily available. She said, quotes, 
Well, yes, basically. I mean, we have too much, and we aren't active enough. I mean, we aren't living the lifestyle that I believe we were evolved to live, because if you look at evolutionary history, we've got these 7 million years it's taken us to get here. And the obesity epidemic has kicked in in the last 10, 20, 30 years, 40 years. It's a very, very short time in evolutionary history. And in that same period of time, we've had the increase in abundance. We've also, of course, had the spread of cars where, you know, everyone has at least one car now, and that's not helping us physically, unquotes. This is an important and fundamental evolutionary understanding about our species when considering the causes and solutions of obesity at this stage in our human history. Lack of daily movement and exercise, coupled with the year-round and overabundant food supply in our modern world, is not in sync with our body's 7 million-year-old hardwiring. Quotes, I'm just surprised we made it, unquotes. As we were nearing the end of our conversation, I shifted gears a bit, as had become my habit with these scientific interviews, turning to questions from professional to personal. The way Professor Aiello answered them was so thoughtful, I wanted you to have a chance to experience her responses as she expressed them to me. These last three questions are transcribed from our filmed interview. I asked, asking you to step out of academia, the science right now, just as a woman living in New York, just for yourself, how do you feel about all of this, the obesity epidemic, and how do you think we can stop it? Professor Aiello, can you stop anything humans do? I mean, yes, in an ideal world, we can stop it. We can stop people smoking. We can change behavior. The question is, we can't do this for everyone or everyone won't want it done. And what's going to happen is, this is actually evolution in action. Well, shall we say if you weren't physiologically adapted to carrying around the extra weight, you aren't going to be successful in evolutionary terms. You aren't going to have as many kids. You aren't going to get as many genes into the next generation. So evolution is going to adjust, but it's the artificial environment that we live in that can change this outcome because one of the main differences between ourselves and our early ancestors is we create our own environment around us as we go. So where our early ancestors use tools, and in this way we're creating a small artificial environment around themselves, we have a huge artificial environment around us, and we have quite sophisticated medical knowledge. Now if we can intervene and make these people invisible to evolution, then evolution isn't going to act in terms of prohibiting or restricting the reproduction of these individuals, causing them to die earlier, unquote. I interjected, where they are sorted out of the gene pool? The professor continued, it's possible that culture will not allow them to be sorted out of the gene pool, you know, with medical intervention. But I'm just surprised we made it. Because when you look at the record, there are so many periods in human evolution where we think that there were bottlenecks, where it was, it was sort of very close whether we actually made it through a particular crisis. And you know, then we're on course again. And I'm sure many, many, many small groups of early humans died out. But there were always other small groups that then came in to replace them. If you model mortality and various assumptions of survivorship in early human evolution, it looks like they were fairly close to the edge in many, many time periods, unquote. I said, so maybe they can give us hope if we're really close to the edge again for a different reason, that we can figure our way out of it with those big brains. The professor said, we would hope so. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Perfect Human Diet. If you have any questions, just call them in and leave a message via the Anchor FM app. I'll answer it in an upcoming episode. 
If you're enjoying the podcast and audiobook, please be sure to take a moment and leave your raise and reviews, and also click subscribe so you don't miss any of the free audiobook. You probably already know leaving a review moves the podcast up the charts, helping others find and benefit from this podcast too. Until next time, this is CJ Hunt and The Perfect Human Diet.